Welcome to another edition of Diffusion, the only science show that helps understanding by translating all monetary values into number of standard drinks at the pub. I'm Jackie Hayes. Today on Diffusion, we will be exploring the truth about marijuana with Jackie Pfeffer. Ian Wolfe investigates some alleged fake soy sauce, and of course, anything else we can cram into this half-hour show. But first, here's Vanessa Gardos with your weekly science. <laughs> Think balancing and walking at the same time are a cinch? Well, it seems there's a lot more to it than just putting one foot in front of the other. A new study involving remotely controlled people shows that the brain uses precise information about head movement and body orientation to control both balance and walking direction. Richard Fitzpatrick of the University of New South Wales and colleagues used an electrode placed just below the ears to remotely stimulate the nerves carrying information from the semicircular ear canals which are the organs responsible for detecting rotational movement of the head. The research team found that by electrically stimulating these nerves, they could control blindfolded volunteers to follow a particular path. Or, by changing the orientation of the volunteers' heads, either tipping the head to one side or moving it perpendicular to the body, the researchers could then use the electrodes to interfere with balance. The blindfolded volunteers were asked to bend their necks so their heads faced the ground or the sky and then to walk to a target straight ahead. When the electrodes were stimulated, the volunteers reported that their bodies felt oriented towards the left or the right, but not towards the target. This meant that they steered a path in the opposite direction in an attempt to compensate. But it seemed that if the volunteers walked with their heads upright, the electrical stimulation instead infected their balance. Until now, it has been thought that upright balance obviously essential for walking, relies on the brain detecting the position of the centre of mass of the body and then aligning this with gravity. These studies show that it depends instead on sensing rotational movement. And other uses for this electrode system have been considered. It could possibly be used to, re to retrain a patient's vestibular system after injury or a stroke, or it may be used to counteract motion sickness to cancel unwanted sensations of movement, by a process not dissimilar to noise-cancelling headphones. So, balancing and walking? Easy, just keep your head straight and upright. The saying does say diamonds are forever, but this may not be the case according to new research from the National Key Centre for Geochemistry and Metallogeny of Continents, based at Macquarie University. By determining how and where diamonds form, disappear and reform, geoscientists can now indicate the best places to look for them. And the good news is that in Australia, diamond country stretches in a broad arc from the Kimberleys in Western Australia to southwest Queensland. By combining laboratory results on the behaviour of rocks and diamonds under pressure, research team leader Dr Craig O'Neill and colleagues have been able to computer simulate the conditions needed to form diamonds deep under the Earth's crust. And it seems that diamonds may be more widespread than previously thought. Popular belief is that once diamonds have formed, they are pretty much indestructible and stay fixed in one place at the bottom of continents. The only way they were thought to make their way up to the surface is, if, is after a violent event such as a volcanic eruption. 
Dr O'Neill believes that this is not the case, and that where the diamonds actually form, it's more mushy than solid rock, and that the diamonds, far from being unbreakable, can really take a beating, sometimes being destroyed entirely. The research suggests a number of places to start digging. Dr O'Neill gives budding diamond hunters a couple of tips. In order to find diamonds at the surface, you need both diamonds deep underground and kimberlite volcanism, which is a very violent type of volcanic activity. And that seems to happen mostly where thick and thin pieces of continent are sandwiched together. So all you need is to find a continent sandwich somewhere in the top half of our vast continent. Easy. Need to download some new music for your iPod? Ever thought about the music of the heavens? The ancient Greeks thought that the planets and stars were embedded in immense crystal spheres that hummed as they spun around the heavens, releasing what they called the music of the spheres. Such a beautiful idea, and yet something that we now believe is wrong. But it turns out, maybe not totally wrong. There are no crystal spheres, but back in the 70s, astronomers found out that the sun and other stars do actually sing. And you can now download these strange and spooky star tones for yourself. Donald Kurtz of the University of Central Lancashire has been studying this star music through a science called astroseismology. Stars can produce notes through their vibrations just like musical instruments, but we can't hear the sounds directly. That's where the astroseismologists come in. These specialised astronomers are able to look beneath the surface of the stars into their cores. Stars have natural vibrations that set up sound waves. These vibrations start by changes in the passage of energy from the nuclear inferno in the heart of the star on its way to the surface and escape into space. The stars may give off ghostly whistling, drumming, humming or rumbling sounds which need to be artificially boosted to bring them into human hearing range. And just to whet your appetite, here's the artificially boosted star sound of the star Chi Hydrae, an old star in the constellation Hydra. It is 130 light years away and 60 times brighter than the sun. The sounds you heard are quite reminiscent of an African drum beat, and in fact it has been featured in club music in Belgium. To download your own star sounds, check out www.world-science.net forward slash other news. Last week in Sydney, as part of the National Science Week, Cosmos magazine hosted a debate on the science of marijuana. We sent along our very own Jackie Pfeffer to tell us all about it. Yes, that's right. Last week I headed off to the Glasshouse Cafe, took my little journalistic cap and headed all the way downstairs here at the UTS Tower Building to go to a debate on marijuana, the good, the bad, the ugly, the myths, the truths... And it was all held by Cosmos magazine because this month's Cosmos magazine has, or their cover story is all about marijuana. What a better seller. Everybody loves to talk about marijuana. Um, now, it was a really, really interesting night. They had some really good speakers. Wilson De Silva, who is the editor of Cosmos magazine, chaired the whole evening. Uh, he was joined by Elizabeth Finkel, who wrote the article in Cosmos. She's also a contributor to Cosmos and wrote the book Stem Cells, Controversy at the Frontiers of Science. What do the stem cells have to do with the uh, with marijuana? <laughs> I'm not sure, but she's a biochemist, I think. So. 
Oh, so she just wrote that book, but it wasn't related to what she, she was wrote, there for. Right, stuff see. for Cosmos. She wrote this. But um, so she's quite a good science communicator. They were also joined by David Castle, who is a professor in psych or professor of psychiatry at St. Vincent's Hospital. He's the co-author of Marijuana and Madness and is also a fellow at Mental Health Research Institute of Victoria. So he was bringing up the sort of psychological side of marijuana use. Of course, the schizophrenia link that everyone believes there. Um, They were also joined by Ian McGregor, who is the director of pharmacology lab at University of Sydney. So it was a really interesting evening. And as Jackie mentioned earlier, we can convert everything monetary into standard drinks and many were had. (laughs) <laughs> um, so if if I get hazy during this talk, it's probably as the night went on, the more wines I had. But the night, it focused around some of the key debates in marijuana, both for and against looking at the good and the bad. And I think one of the really big things to bring up here is that there's so much scientific research out there on marijuana that there's so many conflicting viewpoints that I'm not going to come out and say, you know, Marijuana definitely does this and marijuana definitely doesn't do that because... When, when you say that there's a lot of scientific research on marijuana, is that on humans or is that mostly on rats? Because if it's illegal and there are still a lot of people using it, they're not exactly going to come forward and be like, hey guys, look what happened to me. I smoked pot. I- well, that's a really, really good point. Um, a lot of the research has been done on rats. There's been a lot right. of research on rats. Um, a lot of it's been looking at people... Um, different trials they've done, different countries, um, people's experiences to marijuana. But you're exactly right. I mean, it's illegal, so it's kind of hard to sort of promote it, but try and keep those legal boundaries there. Um, Now, of course, one of the big arguments is politics. Uh, Currently in Australia, or at least New South Wales, I don't get to travel much, it's (laughs) marijuana, It's, it's illegal, and... Looking at prohibition, does prohibition necessarily cut down marijuana use? If you look at the Netherlands, where carrying certain amounts of marijuana, it's illegal. They actually have less use of rate than, say, the UK, which is quite amazing. So I think maybe taking away I temptation all, there. All prohibition really stops is it's being able to buy it at Woolworths. Yeah. That's pretty much... And one of the big things the there is, or... if it's illegal, how can you regulate marijuana? How can you... Or tax. Yeah. Um, another big debate, as you mentioned earlier, Jackie, is schizophrenia. There's a right. there's a big belief there that m- marijuana and smoking it causes schizophrenia. You and said I- belief. Is that not true? Well, that's a good question. What about all this scientific research that they've done that you were just talking about? Isn't is it, it- it's people who are susceptible to getting possibly getting schizophrenia sometime in their life are likely to get it earlier and more definitely if they smoke marijuana? Wasn't that what they found? I think so. Well, they were looking at... um, They think that younger people smoking marijuana is worse than sort of smoking it in your later years because when you're younger, your brain is... It's still forming in so many ways that smoking it is... It's kind of attacking all of those generating processes there. But then you've got to look at, well, people who are forming schizophrenia and who also smoke marijuana, did they have a predisposition to schizophrenia in the first place? Is the marijuana really, is it causing it or is it just bringing out symptoms for a predisposition to the condition? Or could it be that people who are susceptible to schizophrenia are also susceptible to peer pressure and illegal drugs? I'm just throwing that out there. They were saying that about (laughs) depression as well. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, one of the big things too is, I guess, the, the rates of people who have 
a predisposition to all of these mental illnesses and the rates of people who smoke marijuana, they're relatively small. So finding that group there who, of people who fit into both car- categories is very small to go out and do a good scientific survey on. Um, of course, one of the other big topics debated during the evening was is marijuana addictive or dependent and there's all of these different terms and they got into all of these different terms and what they all mean and and everything but is is it a dependence like or an addiction like you sort of harder drugs or is it is it a social thing could it be good for you well there are people who feel it's ruined their lives and who book themselves into detox clinics to get away from their obsession so for those people they obviously feel that it's a bad thing and they want to stop it and they need help and there are a lot of people too on the flip side of that who can sort of you know go home and smoke a little bit every night and find it a very relaxing beneficial part of their daily life it's also listed as or or some people call it like a gateway drug that 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 will get you on the path to to harder things harder things but but is that really true? Because well, that's the thing. I've I've heard that countries that legalize marijuana, they have um, an actual like less people going on to harder drugs because it's actually there for them to use, mm-hmm. like the Netherlands. Yes. Mm. So was there is there a take home message from this this uh, um, <laughs> debate that you went to? Well, the message it I took home was that I mean it was really interesting to sort of hear the good and the bad and the sort of flip sides on on either side of the argument. But um, I guess there's just there's a lot of research that needs to be done on marijuana. Um, getting getting the research done, I think, is probably a pretty controversial fight as well. But um, maybe maybe we've completely overlooked the benefits of marijuana. Maybe we haven't. Maybe we're not being hard enough. Only time will tell. But um, anyway, the article is actually in this month's Cosmos, and the whole evening will be going to broadcast later this year. So it's well worth checking out. That was Jackie Pfeffer reporting back from the debate on the science of marijuana.
That was Letting Go by Overpass. You are listening to Diffusion, the international science radio show. If you'd like any more information about the topics we discuss in this show, or if you'd like to tell us how great our taste in music is, then email us at diffusion at Now, you've heard of pirated software and pirated movies. Is there anything too sacred to pirate? Ian Wolfe has a disturbing story about pirated food. Yes, the annals of improbable research, those people who give out the Ig Nobel Prizes for scientific research that first, first makes you laugh and then makes you think, have brought to our attention a paper from the Internet Journal of Toxicology, Hair Soy Sauce, a revolting alternative to the conventional. Well, that's going to make me cry, not think, or, yeah. or, if not vomit. Yes. Yeah, it's really yes. gross. It's an interesting study. I found a copy of the paper. And uh, it's Alexander C. Ann Lee of, again, the Journal of the Internet Journal of Toxicology. And he's got a story about how they grab human hair, they extract an amino acid, and they add that to a whole lot of other chemicals to make a fake soy sauce that's cheaper than actually brewing real soy sauce. And then they try and sell it. And he reports that in 1998, 13,000 bottles were seized in Hong Kong that were going to head to Australia. So none, none ever made it to Australia, did they? Well, was it only this batch, or have they been exporting for We don't have to go home well, and check our cupboards, do we? Back in 2004, they found someone in the shops in Hong Kong, and then it was formally banned Okay. in China. So are you able to tell the difference? Does it taste exactly the same as normal soy You have to pull it out of your teeth when you... Because <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa would like some. She's sick of paying full price. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> tell me how to get it. Well, the brand name was Hong Shui. If okay. that gives you a, a bit of a clue, um, so if, if yes, I mean if you, obviously if you know your brands, if you if you're a, an expert in soy sauce, soy sauce perhaps you could be a connoisseur. You might be able to tell the difference. So this report, um, you know, it had things like soy sauce, the cheap soy sauce that aroused the public, the stunning alternative to soy, human hair, the toxic consequences of the chemicals in hair. And I won't Toxic into, consequences. Well, I won't oh, go into sure. where the hair came from. Hair's <gasps> full of all sorts of toxins. Like, oh. It's too no. horrible. Oh, God, no. It's too horrible. Hmm. But the annals of improper research didn't stop there. I mean, the internet reports and the news reports talked about, you know, hair from corpses and all sorts of really <gasps> disgusting oh. things that I won't go into oh. any further. Oh, I thought you were talking about something else. But they looked into <laughs> Dr. <laughs> Lee the himself. The is even worse. Well, Dr. Lee has other works and affiliations, some of which are mentioned in his paper. His affiliation is to Queers Network Research, Hong Kong, China. And some of his other published works are things like Foods from Hell, Food Colouring, also in the Internet Journal of Toxicology, where he talks about Chinese steamed corn buns, dry shrimp, colouring with traditional Chinese medicine, fruits and vegetables. He then goes on to, now wait for it, Faked Eggs, the world's most unbelievable invention. Don't tell me they're like the, the packet, what do you call it, the powdered egg, which you just add water to. <laughs> McDonald's I think style. it's a little bit more than that. He's got titles like the eggs that cause problems, the red yolk eggs. Now, I don't believe the powdered eggs have yolks that are separate. No, I don't think they do. Soil-filled eggs, <laughs> human-made eggs, and is it a good advice to <laughs> sniff the eggs only? <laughs> What? Now, Dr. Lee also wrote a paper on therapeutic touch, the conventional versus the alternative. Beware of the alternative therapeutic touch uh, for the Australian Journal of Holistic Nursing. So he explains that pain is the most irritating sensation known to mankind. But the study's central topic, therapeutic touch, 
got an Ig Nobel Prize itself in 1998. Surely pain is just more than irritating. I would have thought tickling would have been the most irritating sensation. Ah, but therapeutic touch doesn't help tickling. It makes it worse. Mm. So I'd rather get belted around the head than being tickled, I think. That can be arranged. That's just me. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Dr. Lee wrote a book, My Weight Loss Diary ebook, which you can purchase a download of for only $6. And this might be worth the price. With a certificate from a pancake challenge after finishing a stack of pancake in less than two minutes, holding a record of eating eight family sized pizzas in a buffet dinner, having two <laughs> burgers with milkshake for lunch every day, and finishing an extra large size frozen chicken with chips and gravy for snacks while still demanding for more. Was this guy huge? He ate all of that. It's not, well, it's not Elvis, is it? It's not, it's not Elvis, no, no. I was going to say the it's whole thought of this. Fake soy sauce is enough to make me lose weight and just never eat again. Yeah. <laughs> just guys... be very, very careful. But of course, we're not sure how accurate all this is. But there is Australian connector. There is an Australian connection. Australian David Padula is a toxicologist at in South Australia who is quoted in the report. So perhaps we can check with him about how dangerous the soy sauce really is. Because hair actually does contain a lot of toxins. It's basically a it's basically a waste product that has beneficial products, that properties, isn't it? The hair and things like fingernails and things, it's all... And you think too about the different chemicals that you use in your hair, just from shampoo and conditioner through to colouring, um, styling, all those sort of things. You mm. don't want to eat human hair. Basically, no. this this oh, hair I'm, soy I'm sauce is, right here. <laughs> hair soy sauce is not safe, and that's what the paper's about. Maybe though, you could, you know how if you spill soy sauce on yourself at at a restaurant, apparently the way to get it off is the white radish that you have. Like if you want white, this is a tip I I'm looking at very <laughs> strange looks in the studio here, but this is a tip I got from Carson off Queer Eye. So the white radish you rub it on the soil. Was, was he a slob as well as him? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean as well? Uh, so maybe the test is if it doesn't come off with white radish. I'm just for your own safety. There guys. we go. So, <laughs> so yes, all your food tips from Queers Re- Network Research. And you're listening to Insane by Overpass. That's all we have time for on this edition of Diffusion. If you've got a question or some feedback, you can contact us at diffusion at 2SER.com. On the show, you have been listening to Vanessa Gardos, Jackie Peffer, Ian Wolfe and Matt Clark. Diffusion was produced by Matt Clark in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. The show is broadcast nationally by the Community Radio Network and you can also get our podcast through iTunes or at feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Jackie Hayes. Tune in next week for some more science on diffusion.
And I know